0: That guy who was just up here looks like me because we go to the same barber. (laughs) For those of you that know us, you know we have a teasing relationship. So I waited until after he was down to tease him. (laughs) Didn't want to tempt him. Uh, By way of an announcement, we have a members meeting next week for affirmed members right after church. So if you can, please plan on having an adult member of your family present and certainly the whole family is welcome although i don't know if there's going to be any child care i haven't heard of that yet so please uh, be on the lookout for uh, an announcement on faith life uh, faith life not face life <laughs> some of you know i don't like facebook <laughs> that was god getting to me there all right very good very good well It's been a year since I preached to you. Uh, I had the ball rolling. That was every two months, and I predicted that I would reach the end of 1 Peter in about uh, age 94 or possibly from glory. It's definitely now gonna be from glory. Just wanna let you know that. And then you won't need it. You'll be be immersed in God every day, praise God. Um, I'm really grateful for the prayers that you've given on behalf of our family. Some of you know, as well as your own households, that it's, it's been a tough year in our household. And so your prayers have sustained us, and I especially appreciate your prayers for your elders, for we pray for you every day. Not every week, not every once in a while, every day. It's not just our job, it's a job that's written on your heart if you're an elder to pray for the congregation members every day. Some of you, we see your faces, we know your pains, we know your sorrows, we know your troubles, and we know your triumphs, so keep sending those praises and prayer requests to your elders. We're we're grateful for you. Uh, My father-in-law, Lee Ballard, is doing fairly well. He's back in the hospital. Thank you for your prayers for that. I just thought I'd throw that in there. He was kind of ornery this morning to the nurse. That's kind of a good sign if you don't know Papa Lee. So uh, we're grateful for that. Brother-in-law Mike Ballard is also recovering at home slowly, but he is getting better day by day. Well, it's been a year since I preached, so I need to go to the Holy Spirit in prayer. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You are sovereign throughout all the universe, and you most certainly have the final say over what's spoken here today. May the preaching of the word here today go forth and not come back empty. Direct the words of my mouth, that at their outpouring, the congregation of the righteous will be properly exhorted and the lost might be saved. In the name of your holy and anointed one, Jesus Christ, your son, I do pray, amen. Well, I've been preaching to you from the epistle of 1 Peter. And it's been a year, so I want to do a recap real quick, like we always do when we get up here. There are six things I'd like you to remember from my messages in 1 Peter. Six things. Number one, that we are a people who've been displaced. We are exiles. Our home is no longer of this earth if you're born again. Our home is in heaven. I was gonna say, kids, you remember I told you your parents are aliens, but those same kids from three years ago are not kids anymore, some of them. So uh, I wanna remind you that you're, you're not from here. You are here, but you're not from here. We've also learned that we're a people of eternal hope, eternal hope due to being born again and that through the blood of Jesus Christ and by his death and resurrection. We're people also who are called to endure our earthly trials, our sicknesses, our persecutions, everything that comes our way, even unto death, to take away our earthly comforts. And that's being provided to us by Christ for our sanctification or our purification. He's getting us ready. He's building our character, yes, but he's getting us ready for the day that he comes to demand Our earthly bodies from us. We've also, number four, become a people of love, a people who love our God above all things and above all persons. And we also love each other in the brethren. We have a family here that is in Christ that the world cannot share. And then we're also supposed to love our neighbors as our own selves. And when I say neighbors, I'm referring to everybody who is outside the body of Christ, everybody who's outside the church. That's your neighbor. Number five, we're also called to fight our sinful impulses, having been made holy by our new birth. We have the Holy Spirit in our corner, and we are now supposed to fight sin, and we have to pitch in on that. Six, And most recently in my series of messages, that is last October, we've learned that Jesus Christ is called the cornerstone. He's the foundational living stone that holds up and supports God's new temple of worship, the church. He's the leader. He's the foundation. He's the walls He's the floor, he's the ceiling, even though he was rejected by men at the time of his earthly walk and he's still largely rejected today. If you read through the book of Revelations, you can pretty much determine that about three fourths of the earth is not gonna be saved. So largely rejected today, and yet he's the cornerstone, he's the foundation of God's temple, the church. And we, in the recent message, are thought of as living stones. We're also spiritual building blocks of God's holy temple, the Church. I'd like to present today's message in a four-pointed outline. That is from 1 Peter chapter 2, and verses 6 to 10. And I'm going to do it by asking four questions. I'm going to ask us four questions. Number one, to whom is Jesus Christ a stumbling block, and a rock of offense. To whom is Jesus Christ a stumbling block and a rock of offense? Question two, why do those who stumble, stumble over him? Why? Question three, how is it that true believers in Christ became true believers? And I know the textbook answer in your heart is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our belief, but how is it that we became Christians to begin with? What got the ball rolling? Did we make that decision in and of our own will? Question four, for what purpose did God recreate the Christian? For what purpose did God make the Christian man and woman to be born again? Let's get into today's message. If you're not already there, please turn to 1 Peter 2, 6 to 10 in your Bibles, and these passages can be found on pages 953 and 954 if you're using one of the church Bibles. I meant to mention that there are Bibles in the back of your seats. For those of you who are new, if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, parents who have Kids in here, would you please make sure they're looking on a Bible today? I'm going to ask them to pitch in at one point, so I'd like to have them, even if they're drawing or whatever, but but open to that Scripture, 953 and 954. So for those of you who have already forgotten, thank you, Daniel, for reading the passages for me. Let me reread the passage. For it stands in Scripture: Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the rock or the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And before I go into our questions in the outline, I'd like you to take a look at 1 Peter 2.6. I'm going to reread that. That's the backdrop for today's message from the scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Peter is citing Isaiah here and referring To the fact that Isaiah had prophesied that God would place his very own son, whom we know as Jesus Christ, on the throne, if you will, governing the new holy city of Jerusalem. This is in prophetic literature. And Zion refers to God's original holy mountain in the Old Testament, which was built at the foot of two mountains, and the Upper East Mountain was known as Zion, God's holy mountain. And if you read the description of this in Hebrews, it was a mountain that could not be touched by human hands. So the word here is referring to the new heavenly city, the new Jerusalem in which God himself and Jesus Christ and all of his elect angels and his elect saints, that's you, will dwell so uh, I, always, I always blow over Zion. Oh, Zion, phew, sounds magnificent. I just blow it over. I had, to, I had to give you that today. So back to the text. Verse 6, whoever believes in him, Jesus, that is, will not be put to shame, which I had taught in my last message that that should be interpreted as those who believe in him will not be damned. So here's the point to take from the verse before we move on. Jesus is the chosen and precious cornerstone, and those who believe in him will not be put to shame, will not be damned. That's the backdrop for today's message. Let's go into today's passages. To whom, number one, is Jesus Christ a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense? I'm going to start with verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. The term honor here is referring to the day that you'll receive your final inheritance, that day that you'll receive the declaration of your salvation. This will be your honor. Many of the founding fathers, many of the founding preachers, uh, including Charles Spurgeon, wrote about you being able to receive your honor in this way. The honor is used as a public declaration here. And it'll be referring to the day that it is declared to you, as it says in Matthew 25, come, come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you and the foundation of the world. And that'll be done in front of all of the judges, the 24 elders, God, Christ will be making the statement. That's your honor. Now the rest of verse seven and verse eight. But for those of you who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock offense. So, especially if kids, if you're looking on, to whom is Jesus a stumbling block? And the answer is right here, those of you who do not believe. Unbelievers stumble over Jesus or just completely ignore him. If you're talking about our day, 2021, the Greeks back in the day of Jesus Christ had a a wisdom all of their own. They had their own gods. They had their own teachings, their own philosophers. The Jews, on the other hand, were waiting for the Christ, and they did not recognize him as the Christ. He was not the mighty warrior who rode in on his white horse and delivered them from their Roman persecutors. He was not that Christ. They stumbled over him. Let me read to you from Corinthians 1 Corinthians, that is, and uh, chapter 1 in verses 20 to 23. Where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through his wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who who believe. So we preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as it says in the next scripture. But they see that as folly. They couldn't see through it. And it goes on to say, for Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified and a stumbling block to Jews and to Gentiles. And the whole world is divided up into Jews and Gentiles, for those of you who do not know that. And Gentiles includes everybody who's not a Jew. I know we have a couple of Jews in here, praise God, that you believe in the Christ and that you are born again. And we've had conversations but Gentiles is the rest of us, and that includes pagans, barbarians, uh, philosophicals, uh, anybody who is not a Jew and actually, in this case, not a believer. To wrap up my question, one, to whom is Jesus a stumbling block? It's the unbeliever. It's the unbelieving world. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the unbelievers, and they stumble over it. Since their wisdom is described by God as no wisdom at all, so they stumble over Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, in our day, most of us just ignore him completely. You'll notice that most of your neighbors do not pay attention to Jesus Christ, and we'll see what happens to those who ignore Jesus later in this message. Question two Why do they stumble over him? Why? Do unbelievers stumble over Jesus Christ and the teachings of the gospel? And the answer is right here in the passages from verse 8 in the second part. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As they were destined to do. Just reading that scripture, the first time I understood it, when somebody enlightened me to the fact, it was It was terrifying. I had a lump in my throat. My heart was beating. I spent months after that in spiritual paranoia wondering if I was one of the chosen ones. Disobey the word here, and in many places in Scripture, means did not believe the gospel message. They stumble because they disobey the word. So disobey the word means did not believe the gospel message and everything that goes along with it. They didn't follow God's commands. They didn't have it written on their heart to even love God. They did not believe. They didn't see Jesus as their savior or through the eyes of faith, as Pastor Eric put it to me the other day. And that was hot in the last message I gave as well, and it kind of bled over into this sermon. This is kind of a continuation and a finishing of last October's message, which I'm sure you're all hanging on every word of that. So to turn this into a two-part answer and ask why did they disobey the word? Why did they not believe the gospel? The grave answer, they were destined not to believe, or predestined not to believe. This is the sad and terrible effect of the predestination of earthly souls, the ones whom God would in fact destroy in damnation, an effect that splits the whole church and their understanding of the gospel message. And sad fact, I I assume, and and I'm finding out out in the community of Christians that most of the American church, I can't vouch for the rest of the world, does not adhere to the doctrine of predestination of souls. So let's go to the scriptures without trying to, uh, to make a treatise on this today, but let's go to the scriptures so that we as a, a local church can be founded in these gospel truths. And although there are scriptures that deal with God's sovereignty in the, in the doctrine of predestination, and especially in the damnation of souls, my favorite and the most pointed verse is Romans verse 9, Romans, uh, sorry, chapter 9 and verses 20 to 22. If you'll take a look there, if you'd like to, I did not figure out which page that was in the church Bible, my my apologies. From Romans 20 to 22, here it is. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and yet another for dishonorable use? What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? It's another scripture That puts a lump in the throat. In this scripture, Paul's referring to human man as a clay vessel. He's a pot. And he's in the hands of the great molder, the great potter, the Lord, God Almighty. In verses 22 and 23, Paul's question is rhetorical. It's, what if God desiring to show his wrath? It's not, what if God... Desiring to show his wrath, I wonder, it's not put to you that way. It's meant to persuade and not to incite wonder. His continuous teachings on the doctrines uh, of predestination, which he develops quite well throughout the epistles, if you read through Paul's epistles, it's full of predestination, it's full of God's sovereignty is what it should be called instead. How God is in charge of the whole universe. He has a plan. He's putting it into motion. Nothing's going to change it. And you're part of it. You're a blessed part of it. And those who will be damned are, there's no hope. There's no hope for them. God, through Paul, or any other writer in the New Testament, is not leaving the truth for mankind to figure out here or to create his own theories. We have no right to do that, we certainly do not have the privilege. We simply have the truth. He's giving instruction, and it's not for the weak, and it's not even for those who are still drinking spiritual baby milk, although it is to take that person from that level to the next level eating solid food, as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians. It's for the maturing believer. In answering my question to point two, why do they stumble? And we're breaking this down into two parts. We probably should. Number one, they stumble because they don't believe. And number two, they don't believe because they were predestined not to believe. The Lord God even overpowers your free will. Let's go to verse 9 in today's passage. My question three, how is it that true believers in Jesus Christ became true believers? Do we make that decision? Did everybody make that decision who's a born-again person? What really got the ball rolling before you... Ask Jesus into your heart. Before you accepted him with your mouth, your declaration, what got you there? I'm going to read verse 9, first part. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Everybody turn to 1 Peter 2.9. I'm going to have us read it aloud together. I'm going to have us read it aloud together from the very first word in verse 9 to the word possession, and we'll stop there. Kids in big church, I want you to read louder than the adults until we get to the word race. You got that? Verse 9, starting with the very first word, and I want you to read louder than the adults until we get to the word race. Then you can quiet down a little, not too much. We're all going to read verse 9 together until we get to the word possession. Ready? But you are a chosen race. Okay, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Kids, I did not hear you at all. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, kids. Good job. From the very beginning, what led us to become Christians What caused us to turn away from our sinful lives and turn to Christ and repent is we were chosen. We were chosen. We were chosen by God even before he made us, and most Reformed theologians know that we were chosen by God even before he made the world. This portion of the doctrine of predestination is known as the doctrine of election. And the only reason I'm mentioning these words in this way is Paul does in his epistles. He talks about teaching proper doctrine, and this is part of proper doctrine. The saints are mentioned as the elect in many portions of the New and the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a few scriptures that you can write down and read later, because there are many about you being one of the elect if you're born again if you're saved. So a few scriptures where the saints are mentioned as the elect. Matthew in chapter 24 and verses 22, 24, and 31. Romans chapter nine, verse 11. Romans chapter 11, verse seven, and verse 28. First Peter chapter one, verse one, very beginning of this epistle. Second Peter chapter one, verse 10. If anybody missed that, you can come up after and I'll give you all of that. And it goes back to the Old Testament. I found nine places in the Old Testament where the people that were going to be those whom God would save as the elect. Let's go to the scriptures and look at the controversial point. So you can have a better understanding of today's text and this doctrine. We shouldn't go over this to try to prove this, by the way, to somebody else as part of our spiritual prowess. That's pride. We should go over it so that we can become grateful. Let's look at 2 Timothy 1, 8, and 9. You can find that on page 935 in the Church Bible, so you're following there. 2 Timothy 1 and verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read now. So there excuse me, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus Before the ages began. So in this scripture, Paul's affirming not only the salvation of their souls. In advance of the creation of time. But as we know it, also their calling to ministry. And then in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, my very favorite scripture on predestination. And one that my son used to convert my thinking, if you will, when he was a rebellious teenager, he just dropped this in my lap one day. Pastor Eric had been sick. I stayed home. No, I had been sick. I stayed home. Pastor Eric preached on predestination. I went, oh, I don't want to hear it. This is a a Jeff Casanelli thing when he doesn't want to hear something. He holds up his hand. And he just dropped the scriptures in my lap and ran off to his room. After hours, hundreds of scriptures unfolded that I had never understood before as I was converted in this thinking in the doctrine of predestination. Let me read Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's one for you. I've overlooked that a few times. I don't know about you, but I'm not to heaven yet. And yet, he has put in place blessings in heaven for us. I don't even know what they all are. I know what some of them are. He goes on to say, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Beloved capitalized here, referring to Jesus Christ. So that's a lot of meat and potatoes. How can anyone deny the predestination of souls unto salvation After reading that, if you're hearing that and you still don't understand and you're a believer, one of us pastors, we can go over that with you. Consider the fact that you have been chosen, pre-chosen. I think it should cause exceeding gratefulness and humility. Face on the floor, as my wife once put it to me, If I were you, I'd have my face on the floor right now. The last half of Romans 9, 23, and 24 explains that he predestined some for damnation, and then, now I quote for the back half, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That's you, believer. So he damned some, in part, To show the ones he saved, they should be full of greatness for their salvation, full of awe for God's power, and full of humility for having been saved, full well knowing that both the damned and the saved don't deserve to be saved. Do we deserve to be saved? We do not. We don't deserve to be saved. That's not what the scripture teaches. What's really hard about Christianity and hearing the gospel message for the first time is, this is who God is. He's holy and pure, and his definition of you is not that. There are lists in the Bible that describe you and I apart from Christ. Let me paraphrase one. You are slandering, conceited, hypocritical, murdering, thieving. I could go on and on. That's paraphrasing one of the lists in Scripture of who you are. Now, if you're an unbeliever, or who you were before Christ. For those of you who have been raised in the church, homeschooled, never led outside of the confines of mom and dad's protective measures until you go to high school or your job for the first time, and you think you're not that list, remember the teachings on the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, Pastor Greg Balzer's been going over that with us. Basically, in a nutshell, Jesus says, if you've thought it, you've done it. You've thought it, you've done it. And if you're going to tell me you haven't thought it, we need to go to John on that one who says he who says he doesn't have any sin is calling God a liar. Do we deserve to be saved? No. We're saved only by grace through faith, and this is the very essence of the gospel. Grace is God's unmerited, undeserved favor. Even in the Old Testament, when he says he favored Abraham, it doesn't mean that Abraham was this wonderful, good person who did all these good works and God's been keeping an eye on him. So I'm going to choose him as my man to create a whole nation through him. No, that's not what he's saying. The answer to question three, how do we become a Christian? We were chosen before God even made the world. That's what got the ball rolling. That's what changed even your will. That's what made you say, Jesus, please come into my heart if you're one of those. I was one of those. And I'll add, you were chosen by God even before he made the world, even though we would show ourselves later on to be undeserving, sinful people. Question four. For what purpose did God recreate the Christian? Why did God recreate? make the Christian to become born again. From 1 Peter in verse 9 again, but you are a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We now know that. And why did he cause us to be born again? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You were made to be born again you were predestined to be a child of God while others were predestined unto damnation. You were called. You are being sanctified. That means being purified through your trials. You will be justified or have been justified by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God now looks at Jesus when he sees you and you will be glorified all so that you will proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. And into his marvelous light. You were made to be born again to bring God glory. You were called to Christ to tell the whole world how great he is. You were called to your ministry of good works because God Almighty willed it to be so before the ages began to show his radiance, to show his beauty You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works prepared before you were born that you should walk in them, Ephesians 2 says, so that the universe can hear you proclaim by your words and by your actions that he is God and there is no other that shall be worshipped. All things, especially you, O man and woman of God, were made to proclaim to the world that there is one God only and that he is to be glorified. He's to be made to be shown as the magnificent God that he is, and all things will be done by his will and grace forever and ever. Why did God cause you to be born again? To proclaim to the world his excellencies, to bring him glory. In conclusion, last point, and my call of the gospel to you today, both believers and unbelievers at Veritas, and in verse 10... Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I was just thinking about what a criminal I was. Peter's last words here We're citing the prophet Hosea, which Paul also does in the book of Romans. Peter is preaching to largely a Gentile crowd, and he's conveying to them that they are now God's people, but were not born his children by birthright. It's the same message he's given to us today. God has made children of the Gentiles and the Jews by extending his mercy and grace through the spent blood of Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, and by causing us to believe in this fact, and he got the ball rolling even before the creation of the world. But we still needed to be redeemed as does any unbeliever. When Nicodemus, one of the Jewish leaders, a Pharisee, came to Jesus by night in the book of John, and he sat with him, he was secretly becoming a believer, we think by all the scriptures. He was poking and prodding at Jesus. Jesus, we know, God bless you, we know you are from God. We know that you're a good teacher because you're doing all of these things. You're doing good deeds, you're healing people, you're raising them from the dead. But Jesus cut right through the mustard onto what was on that Pharisee's mind. He said, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. He knew right what was on Nicodemus's heart. He was trying to find out if he truly was the Messiah. We, all unbelievers, still needed to be saved even though we were predestined. That is, the transformation needed to be made. We needed to be saved from God's wrath. As Peter says here, once you had not received God's mercy. Mercy is God's eternal pardoning of your sinful character through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mercy is not you offended a neighbor really bad, so he forgave you this time. Mercy is not you made your kid mad and in a way that's against the scriptures. so you had to go and seek his his apology. That's momentary and temporal. Mercy is God's eternal pardoning of your sinful character and every sin affiliated with it from before time until you take your last breath. Once we heard and received and accepted the gospel message, we became born again. This is your living hope, according to Peter in the beginning of this epistle. It's what Peter was referring to when he says, Now you have received mercy. We, before we were saved, had to hear God's words preached. More specifically, the gospel message preached. We are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2 says, And faith comes through hearing, and that through the words of Christ. We have ample evidence also that those who cannot understand the gospel message because of a mental dysfunction are saved. That's what we believe and that's what we teach here. But mostly, this is how God does it. You have to have the word preached to you, friend, neighbor pastor on Sunday, a gospel preacher on the street, or you have to get it from the Bible. You have to read the Bible. We know people in this room who were saved just from reading the Bible. In a nutshell, the gospel message is this, and this is for you if you're not certain. This is for you if you're an unbeliever and you just came here investigating us today. Every man Woman and child are born with a sinful character, born dead in their trespasses and sins, God's word calls it. That means you are spiritually unable to respond to God's holy invitation on your own. That's what dead in your trespasses and sins means. Inheriting from the first man, Adam, sin. And that's in Genesis chapter 3. Read the whole chapter. But because God, who's pure and holy, promised eternal punishment for this sinful character, which is both physical and spiritual death, that's the punishment. And there are some graphic details about spiritual life and spiritual death. You can find all this in Genesis 2, and then also some, some examples of spiritual death in Matthew chapter 13. But God must, being a just God, carry out the punishment he promised, and he will do so in his wrath. And that's what we're talking about when we say there are, there are descriptions of this, this punishment. But also God being a merciful God, he promised to send an advocate one day, that is someone to stand in our stead, which has been and is Jesus Christ, his son. He sent him to come and die on our behalf, to receive that physical punishment of death in our place. But Jesus also rose from the dead, I'm going to go on and add, and therefore he overcame the spiritual death for the believer. He came to die on our behalf for our sins and for the sins of the whole world, the Bible says. That is not saying that everyone is going to be saved because of Jesus' death and resurrection. All who hear this message realize then their past sinfulness and believe this message by faith and have a complete change of heart. That's what repentance is. A change of heart for the holy and pure and a warmth for the person of Jesus Christ or a growing warmth for his fellow man after having heard The resurrection, the death and resurrection message, they will be saved from God's wrath, which is being reserved, his wrath that is, for those who disbelieve this message or who completely ignore it, which is the same thing. My main point for today's message has been that Christians here in this assembly would know that they are chosen even before the ages began. To be redeemed for God's glory. My aim and my hope is that they will now go out and proclaim his excellencies. My advice to unbelievers is please come up and speak to one of his pastors after service. There are four of us here today, I believe. If after hearing this or any other gospel message you believe you've been converted, you suddenly have a feeling of warmth for the person of Jesus Christ, a warning to God's elect in this room, I don't know about other congregations, don't become puffed up as to boast when you hear higher theology than the surrounding churches are getting taught. Be humbled instead. Be humbled you should be brought low, that you were chosen, knowing that you should have been damned by your own actions. Instead, examine yourselves, beware of false pride. Exhort one another, gently encourage one another through the scriptures to believe the gospel truths. Love one another so that you don't fall by your own judgment and counsel. Let's pray. Father God, we do praise you for the truth of your word. We do praise you for the wisdom that is wisdom and for opening our eyes to worldly teachings, which is no wisdom at all. It's how you guard our hearts. It's how you cause us not to fall. And we pray that by this message today, the lost will be saved and the congregation of the righteous will be properly shepherded. In the name of Christ, we do pray. Amen. So every week here at Veritas, we. We celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we proclaim that fact through the receiving of communion. And we invite you to join us for communion if you are a baptized believer in Jesus Christ in the way it was described here today through the gospel. And if you are a member of a local church, by the way, local means it could be Modesto, it can be... France. It means you're a member of a church. You sit under a body of elders, and you call yourself a member of a church that preaches the gospel like the way you heard it today. In just a moment, we're going to have leaders come up here, and we're going to serve you the emblems. We ask you to come through one of the two center aisles and receive those emblems and return around the sides. Take your seat and wait for the rest of us, and we'll all take the emblems together. Uh, in the meantime, I do want to... Re- um, read to you from the scriptures. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which will be given up for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.